economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, inflation has been a hot topic here the last, what has been now, a week and a half or so for us. I know the podcast will come out a little bit later, but the data came out with a 4.2% inflation spike. And so we thought this was a good time to talk about that. I really think for our listeners, let's, let's be real specific on what inflation is, kind of get down some of the terms and maybe different ways that it's measured even might be a good way to start this off. Peter, what, what's your, what do you tell your principal students on what inflation is? Yeah, so the best way to think of inflation, the, the standard definition is that it's a rise in the average level of prices. And so we have to, I think, break that down even a little bit further that, you know, when you buy things you're buying different amounts of certain things. And so maybe you buy like a lot of beef, but not so much fish. And maybe a lot of consumers have that same behavior as you. And so when we talk about inflation, we're not talking about, you know, fish and beef as if they're the same. If people are buying a lot more beef, then that price matters a lot more towards the average. And so if we were able to perfectly collect like all the buying patterns of everyone in society, we could find the average price of all the goods that people buy. And we could see how that moves over time. And so that's what inflation is. But we measure inflation as Russell alluded to a little bit differently than just trying to find the, the rise of all prices. Inflation, one way that we measure it is with the CPI. And I think the CPI, you know, it's not a perfect measure, but it tries to get at something good. And so what the CPI, the consumer price index is trying to measure is the average price of goods commonly purchased by urban consumers. Yeah, so they do that by the consumer survey, consumer population survey, I think is what it's called. And that's done periodically. It's not done all the time, but they literally try to match the basket of goods. And there's about 80,000 goods is what I'd like to tell my students in the Bureau of Labor Statistics shopping cart. And they send out little government agents out to Target and out to the grocery stores and read the retail prices on the shelves. And they, that's how the data is collected. Frankly, I don't know if it's changed a little bit over time with the internet, but I doubt it because they, it's really important to you know, not trust the internet. We all know how you pull up a website and it says one price and then you go to the store and it's something different. So that is how that data is collected. And so it, it reflects the typical consumer purchases. Yeah. And so, you know, just I'll, I'll put the shortcomings out ahead of time. I do think this is a great measure The you know, some shortcomings. Again, I, I was very specific about saying urban consumer, mm. a lot of rural areas, their shopping habits aren't monitored. And so if you're in a rural area and you buy things, inflation measures by CPI might not actually capture the changes in your standard of living. But again, you know, the reason that we do uh, these these consumer goods is because we don't want to capture and the advantage of, in, of you know, the CPI is we don't really want to capture just changes in like investment goods. Mm -hmm. And so like if stock markets are, are rising in price over time, that maybe affects your life somewhat and your investment decisions and things like that. 
but it's not like month to month, you're going to be struggling to pay the bills if stock prices have gone up. And so it's really focused on a person's ability to, you know, buy housing and buy food and the things that matter to people. And so I think the idea of CPI is actually very good that we want, we need some sort of way to look at, you know, a measurement of like how much harder is it for people to buy the things that they normally buy? Well, and I, I thought one of the, my criticisms of the Fed that we'll get into more lately, but this little minor one is that they started tracking what's called the core CPI, which excludes food and fuel. And the thing that mm-hmm. I have a beef against is that that's exactly what most people on lower incomes, that's, that's right. like the largest fraction of their whole spending. And so to, to use that for policy, but yet it excludes that. They started doing this so probably 10 years ago, tracking the core CPI and, and citing reasons that that gives a better long-term yeah. perspective, blah, blah, blah. And, and I just didn't really ever agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you entirely, Russ. In fact, if you look at a lot of what's dri- driving inflation right now, I mean, you know, it's a single piece, so it's not the most significant thing, but it's very significant relative to its size. One specific good that's driving a lot of CPI right now is corn. Corn has risen way, way, mm-hmm. way in price. That affects food consumption, obviously. You think of all the things that have high fructose corn syrup. All those things are going to increase in price when corn goes up. So that's like a huge amount of groceries. Yeah. Also, ethanol-based fuel. And so when you exclude things like fuel and you exclude things like groceries, I mean, <laughs> you know, if corn is going way up in prices, that really hurts your ability to buy lots of things. Of course, CPI is not actually catching that. It's not actually taking into account the, those things. Yeah. So, yeah. One thing that always irritates me when we talk about inflation is that it seems like there are there is more than one definition of inflation depending on who you're arguing with so a lot of people and these are people in for instance like the a lot of austrians will say that inflation is an increase in the money supply not an increase in prices so would it make sense to differentiate between monetary inflation and price inflation and say that what we are talking about, and I take it, is price inflation? And these two things are, of course, you know, correlated, but you know, some people will say, by definition, we are in an inflationary regime. And you can do this, you can know this without even looking at the relative prices of goods. You can just look at you know, M2 or the money supply or whatever. So just to be clear, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but these are two different things that people mean when they talk about inflation. One is increasing the money supply and the other is an increase in the uh, price of goods. I think for most part, economists and what we teach in principles class is more of just prices. Like we're, we're thinking about the average person and the prices they, they face when they go to Walmart or, or the grocery store or otherwise. Um, and then we, in later chapters, bring up that you know, Milton Friedman argument, which we'll certainly get into on this podcast about the monetary inflation. So. And, and I will say, uh, I don't want to get too much into inside baseball, but e- even, you know, for example, Mises and, and Rothbard, some of these Austrian economists even dislike Friedman's conception. So Mises had a, a kind of a problem with the idea of an average price level. He didn't think that average price level made a lot of sense as a measure of things. And so that was a, a critique uh, that Mises gave. And Rothbard didn't like the quantity theory of money. Though I, I've always found his reason to be a little bit weird that he says that the quantity theory of money is a tautology, depending on how you've defined velocity. And that's true. But, you know, Mises was oftentimes attacked for having a lot of economics that was a tautology. And Mises said, well, it's a useful tautology. I think to, to answer your question, Justin, I tend to think of inflation as a concept that needs to be useful to us. So like there, there's a reason why we measure inflation. The way that I think about inflation is it's a way to measure how much harder it is for people to buy things. And so 
an increase in the quantity of money, as we'll talk about in, in a little bit, does lead to price inflation ultimately, but it doesn't have to right away. And so it's possible to have a lot more money floating around in the economy or a lot more money in the economy without actually making anybody's lives harder immediately in terms of buying things. And so I think it's okay to talk about inflation as if it's just the amount of money relative to the amount of goods. I think that's an okay way to talk about it. But I also think it's reasonable to talk about what's happening to prices because that's what people have to run into. Yeah. And the financial crisis kind of taught us that lesson of, of there being a separation potentially of the money supply increase and the price increases, because we didn't see the inflation that I was expecting and most other economists yeah. were expecting was going to come around. And it really just never did. Yeah. And well, part of the reason I think for that, Russ, and, and maybe we can get into this now is Part of the reason is that the recovery for the financial around the financial crisis was really slow. It took a long time for the economy to get better. You talk about, you know, Bush passed the first stimulus packages for their recovery. Well into Obama's second term, we were still recovering from the recession. Yeah. And so I think now's a good time to mention like why it is that inflation's happening right now. And I think the most reasonable explanation for why inflation is happening right now is the Federal Reserve has increased the money supply a lot. M2 is one way that we measure the amount of money floating around in the economy. And so M2 is currency in circulation, checking account deposits, saving account deposits, money market accounts, and small time deposits. Small meaning money that you have in a CD at a bank that's less than 100000 That pretty much captures the majority of M2. Yeah. So it's it's cash plus a lot of things that are most like you could trans cash very quickly. Yeah. If you transactional to. type accounts that, liquid you know, the assets. average. Yep. Uh, liquid, very, American, very liquid. Very, very liquid. Yeah. And, you know, so if you want to go buy something new, you transfer money from your savings account to your checking account. And so all of that's captured with this M2 measure is the official government name for it. Yeah. So the Federal Reserve has increased M2 a lot. And if you look at the numbers, there has been such a large increase in M2, uh, basically a 30% increase, that one fourth of the money currently in circulation actually has been printed since January 2020. Printed doesn't have to mean literally printed. It could be zeros added to bank accounts or something like that. But the point is, the Federal Reserve has, uh, by essentially buying treasury debt, so the treasury says, we're going to pay the Federal Reserve you know, X amount of dollars in the future. And in exchange, the Federal Reserve is going to print a bunch of money and give it to the treasury right now. Yeah, let's nurse that one out a little bit. Sure. Um, so the government wants to give you all $1,400 each. And so how they did it is that the federal government, meaning Biden regime at this point, they can't print off money. So what they can do though is borrow. So they print off a government bond, which is an IOU, and they say, okay, we need a trillion bucks. So they print off a, a trillion dollars worth of IOUs and they go sell them to the open market. But here's the hidden secret that a lot of people don't know. The open market is a player in the open market, so to speak, is our Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is completely independent in terms of its operations from the federal government in theory and in practice. I don't mean to lay that one on too heavy, but basically if Biden or Trump tells the Federal Reserve chair, hey, print off more money, they don't have to do it. They're not their boss. So they operate independently. Now there's a CPU. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's very nice of you. I, I, would say in, I would say in theory, but not in practice. Uh, be, because, uh, you know, it, people can look up infamous examples of like Richard Nixon basically, you know, well, forcing his Trump's chair to print more. And, and everything yeah. else. But yeah. that in theory, that aside, yeah, yeah. you know, they, that's why they, they can take a different stance. They, they technically do not uh, march to that drum, but there might be political reasons 
reasons that they may or may not play footsie, let's call sure. it, yep. with, with flirting with whatever the uh, popular political policy is. But that said, so the, the Federal Reserve actually went out and purchased these bonds. So now think of the Federal Reserve as an independent player. They are holding the government bonds and they handed cash to Biden. Biden distributed it out the 1400 to everybody else. So in our system in the United States, Biden, my point, big point I want to get across so that everybody's clear is that Biden does not control the printing press. And so when you hear people saying, oh, they're just printing money to pay for stuff, there's a process there and it, it actually can be similar. But here's how it's fundamentally different is that when if, if the Federal Reserve is holding those bonds, when they come due, our federal government will pay, actually literally pay funds to the Federal Reserve to make due. So if they owed them a trillion, that trillion will kind of leave the economy, if you will, and go back into the Federal Reserve banking system. And so that's a little bit of a check and balance that's fundamentally different than what we saw in places like Zimbabwe, where if Biden's actually able to run the printing press, that money never has a mechanism sure. to come back yeah. out of the system and kind of naturally drain itself. Now, what really happens here is that Biden has money that's due to the Fed, and then he sells more bonds and he pays for it with borrowed money yeah. anyways. And so we kind of have this perpetual borrowing and uh, increasing of the money supply over time, which is really what Justin was alluding to that historically we have about a 2% growth rate over time, long-term of M2. And that is the process that takes place in the United States. Yeah. And so the the key there it, at the end of this process, the results you can think of is basically there's more money now. The government has gotten a bunch of money that's printed off and they're going to pay the Fed back eventually for that. But today they have more dollar bills. Those bills didn't previously exist. The Fed, the Fed printed them. And so they give those out to people. And so you might think, well, that sounds nice. Like, you know, you're handing out people's handing out money to people like, hey, it's, you know, reverse taxation, but actually it's not. This is a form of taxation. And the reason it is, is when the government hands out that newly printed money, people start spending it, right? And when people buy things, things start flying off the shelves. The, re the response that, you know, different markets have is to start to raise prices because they run out of the goods that they're selling. And so the Fed originally printed a bunch of money because they were afraid not enough people were buying things. Sometimes like Keynesian economists would say aggregate demand fell. And so the Federal Reserve is concerned about that. And so they print out a bunch of money to start to kind of continue people's buying patterns to keep that up. So that way, businesses don't go under. The Fed is worried that, you know, if we don't print money and allow people to spend more then some businesses are going to shut down. So for both reasons of the lockdown and reasons of fear, people stop spending money. The government prints a bunch of money and hands it out. But as they hand it out, you know, people start spending more. And now the lockdown has ended. And so all this new money still exists, but the lockdown has ended. People are less concerned about the recession. They're starting to go back to their normal spending patterns. In other words, spending's kicking up. And so there's more money in the economy, but basically the same amount of stuff, or at least other things equal the same amount of stuff. And so prices are rising because, you know, there's a more demand for goods than there was before. And so this new money ultimately leads to, as Justin pointed out, inflation. In other words, printing new money with the same spending habits is going to lead to inflation, at least in the long run. And so that's what's happening right now. And that's why the consumer price index just rose 4.2% year over year. All right. This looks like a good spot for a break. And I'm going to leave you dangling with the thought of, I do have an idea how things might naturally adjust and not get too crazy with inflation. And we'll explore that and some other thoughts on bailouts and other things in just a bit. If you enjoy our podcast or want to support our work, please consider a one-time or re reoccurring donation. 
please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. The Gorton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. We have a high school offering now of a course that you can take uh, through Ottawa um, and earn some college credit. So we're looking for some uh, anxious high school students that want to explore some more economics and it's going to be uh, reasonably priced. I don't actually have it priced yet, so contact me later if you want to check that out and earn some college credit. That college credit will be transferable to any other university that your high school student uh, goes to. So um, give me a call if you'd like to get some more information on that. If you want other information about the Gorton Institute or Ottawa University, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gordney Institute for updates on our activities and research. Okay, so we've talked about some different things here with prices changing, and Peter alluded to the, some of the problems we have with looking at average prices. Uh, in fact, some prices go down when we have inflation. So if prices are 4.2% up, it's possible that, I don't know, electronics is a good example that have got, been going down over time. So a, a 42 inch flat screen might fall by 10% during this time when other things are rising. So you've got a bunch of prices rising at different rates on average than taking that average of the 80,000 items in the, in the consumer shopping basket, they are going up. And here's the thing, because some are going up and some are going down, it could be that different people are bearing the burden of that differently. Justin, what do, what do you want to say about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, Peter earlier said that inflation is a kind of tax, and I think that's correct, right? And it's important to note the form that this tax takes, which is that it makes each dollar worth or redeemable for a smaller amount of goods. And when we think about the portion of the population that this affects, we should note that it is the least well-off among us who store more of their wealth in dollars and who depend on each individual dollar's ability to be exchanged for those goods. And, you know, the very wealthy have a lot of their net worth in things like stocks and real estate. And in periods of inflation, those things are worth more and more dollars. So those things actually appreciate in terms of dollars in periods of inflation. But if you only have a, you know, a checking account, all of your dollars are actually depreciating with, with respect to the things that you can redeem them for. So inflation really hurts the poor and it hurts them on that end. And it also hurts them on the other end because most people who are wage laborers, their wages aren't indexed to inflation and at least not at the rate at which and the times at which inflation is happening. So again, the wealthy who you know can actually often have a lot of their income derived from things like, you know, stock accounts and that kind of thing. Those things do well during inflationary periods, or at least better. But if you are also a wage laborer, not only are your individual dollars purchasing less goods, but 
the rate at which you are exchanging your labor for dollars is unchanged, unchanged. So you get nailed on both ends for this. And so that is one reason why, you know, to the extent that you want to be concerned with the least well-off in society, you should be very worried about inflation. Yeah, and I might further that a little bit with the, what we call the Fisher formula in economics. So we can look at what your real change in purchasing power is from an investment. So if, for instance, if you invest $100 and you get a 10% rate of return, but the inflation rate is 2%, then next year when you pull out your $110 from your $100 investment earning 10%, prices have gone up at Walmart by 2%. And so you're really only able to put 8% more goods in your shopping cart. And that's what Justin's alluding to is that people with higher incomes have higher investments or things that are earning, which may even be going up with inflation. And so they might take a little bit of a, of a hit in terms of the purchasing power, but it's not as bad as the poor where, so if most of your wealth is held in a checking account, the little bit that you have, and you're earning, let's just say 1%, and that's probably generous. If there's 2% inflation, you actually have a negative 1% real rate of return in terms of what you can put in your shopping cart. So you're simply subtracting your nominal rate, the rate that you're actually earning minus the inflation rate is what the Fisher formula does for real rates of a return and purchasing power. Yeah. So as as Russ and Justin both just put together, so one clear effect is that people's savings accounts are going to fall in value over time. Justin alluded to that. It's basically if you just have a, a, a and I say savings broadly, if you have like money in your wallet, if you have a checking account, things like that, those things are not going up as quickly as stocks. So that's one thing. Lower real wages is another. Justin mentioned that. A third thing is even that aside, even if you take those, those two facts aside, who, you know, assuming let's assume inflation had the same impact on everybody across those two margins somehow like you know rich people just had checking accounts they didn't have stocks that appreciated and rich people just had like a yearly wage and that's where most of their income came from comes from even then who does a ten dollar hike in groceries affect more a person with a lot of money in their savings account or a person with not much and so even you know the these like number measures aside we know that it's more painful for a poor person to have to deal with higher prices than it is a rich person. And so even if the percentages impacted the same, I mean, the total steel man argument in favor of like an inflation policy, you're still going to have this hurt the poor more because a rich person, you know, 10 to more dollars on groceries, no big deal. A poor person, you know, that can make or break your month, another $10 on groceries. And so that's, that's one side of the pain. Another side of the pain that is not captured, uh, sort of a, a non-price impact of inflation, is that a lot of times places like grocery stores won't increase prices right away, even if you know, the market price should be going up, because they don't want to alienate people or customers with changing their prices daily. Because basically, if you wanted to keep up with the market price, you'd have to change your price, you know, hourly, minutely, daily, things like that. But grocery stores are afraid of doing that because they don't want to alienate customers and make them mad. And so sometimes they keep the price the same for a long time. Like maybe they change prices once a month. The problem is if a price is supposed to be going up and it doesn't go up because the grocery store wants to not make customers happy, what that means is the shelves are going to clear. And so poor people, again, who, you know, don't have a whole lot of time because they're working their hourly jobs to go out and find groceries on the shelves might just have to do without something like they might just lose the opportunity to buy something. Whereas a rich person, you know, you have a lot of extra time or you can hire someone to go get groceries for you. 
And so even the non-price effects of inflation, it's, it's a very regressive tax. In other words, it, across multiple margins, it's a tax that hurts poor people specifically. Yeah, emotionally regressive, right? Yeah. But it disproportionately hurts the poor more than the rich. I wanted to circle back to Justin's comment on in, the inflation tax, just to make sure the listeners are clear. So normally how things work is the government spends money and collects taxes and April 15th, we pay our tax bill. So when we refer to the inflation tax, the reason we're saying it that way is that the government can also pay for its bills when it runs deficits. Uh, I mentioned the bonds, the government bonds that they're selling, they're fixed to an interest rate. And so effectively when when there's inflation, the government's paying back with cheaper dollars. And so it actually works to the government's benefit. And of course, to consumers detriment, because the four, let's call it 4% inflation now is actually working to the government's benefit. And so they're using the inflation as a way to lessen their tax. It's another way for them to collect money in kind of a hidden way. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it wouldn't be regressive if the government right away gave, and in fact, everyone knew right away, the government printed a million dollars and then they just evenly distributed it to the whole population. And businesses all knew that and immediately changed their prices. Like that sort of policy would actually have no impact on the economy. Prices would change their number, but everybody would have, you know, relative to their income, the same amount of wealth and things would be fine. And so you might think, well, we got these, you know, nice stimulus checks. So what's the big deal? Like, yeah, prices went up, but we can pay for them with the stimulus checks. But the bulk of the government stimulus package was not stimulus checks. If you look at the dollars and cents, the bulk of the government bailouts went to large corporations. This was corporate welfare. And so what the government effectively did is they took purchasing power away from consumers. They turned that purchasing power into dollars and cents, and they handed that dollars and cents to big corporations. That's what's going on. And they gave a stimulus payment to maybe make you feel a little bit better about yourself. And you didn't lose quite as much as if they didn't give you anything at all. Sure, of course. But on net consumers lost for this. And you, you you just have to look at the composition of the bailouts to understand who won and who lost. And the average, you know, low income, middle class, working class person uh, all those categories lost out uh, because their stimulus check does not make up for uh, the inflation and future debt that they have to pay for. That is certainly an untold story in today's media. That's right. That by looking at the composition of that of those bailouts, that uh, and, and through this inflation tax is ultimately a transfer from consumers to corporations. Yeah, uh, is, is the long and the short of it. And uh, that that's pretty sad. And and that was true. This is not partisan. I mean, this is, you know, Trump was going to dish it out. Biden's going to dish it out because the the elected officials and other bureaucrats, you know, they like the power that they have. And this only empowers them more uh, when there's more funds under their control. And so I'm not sure how we, you know, get that out into the public. Maybe it's part of the Gorton Institute's right. mission here to, to do a couple of things. But, you know, I think the whole idea of corporate welfare is detestable, but it just got so slickly mm-hmm. put out there with the COVID cover-up. And I mean, I don't mean, of course, I'm not trying to say COVID's not real. I meant cover-up in the sense that using COVID as an instrument to redistribute wealth. Redistribute yep. wealth. Yeah. Yeah. So. And so I, I agree with that 100%, Russ. And I, I guess I would say, you know, fi- what we can do about it. One nice thing, and so this isn't, bef- I'm going to preface this, this isn't investment advice that I'm giving out. But one nice thing that's happened recently is the evolution of 
cryptocurrency. And, <laughs> I was and, wondering if yeah. we were going to and, and markets like to that. Bitcoin. And, uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm not saying buy Bitcoin, but what I am saying is the existence of assets like Bitcoin are positives for the country yeah. because it actually literally constrains the government's ability to do this. Yeah. The more people have their savings in Bitcoin, the less government can plunder those savings by increasing the supply of dollars. Basically, if no one's using dollars and the government prints a bunch of dollars, those dollars still don't buy anything, right? And so they haven't successfully taken anything or taxed anything. And so one nice thing about Bitcoin, again, not as an individual investment that I'm encouraging you to get, you make that decision yourself. Uh, but one nice thing about it is it's mere existence is providing a good to us yeah. who are worried about inflation and in that it, it curbs the government's ability to use seniority in the first place. It lowers that incentive. Yeah, what we call a credible threat. That's that's exactly uh, threat right. Threat of entry, basically. And we, we saw this threat carried out in places like Venezuela. In Venezuela, mm -hmm. people were literally taking their paychecks the minute they got them and buying cryptocurrency with them. Sometimes they, people would buy U.S. dollars, you know, a gold, other forms of currency. But a lot of people learned how to use Bitcoin in Venezuela when this started happening. Or a lot of people switched to jobs that just paid them in Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, one of the big video games out there, one of the big MMOs is called RuneScape. And what you'll find if you get on RuneScape is a lot of Venezuelan players who are spending their time making money in the game of RuneScape and selling that for Bitcoin. Uh, so you, you see little things like this happening. And so it, it's a nice, credible, you know, a way of maybe standing up and saying, I don't want my savings plundered. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And so listeners, we've been uh, quite a few different podcasts on, on Bitcoin. So you can go back and review some of those. But I, I think as Peter was saying, that does give you a, if this thing got, does start to get ugly, if 4% turns out to be persistent and not transitory as a, uh, Justin pointed out in a tweet that I love that you are here. We're going through this kind of evolution of, of observing this inflation. And right now the bureaucrats are saying, oh, no, don't worry about it. this is just a, a temporary thing. It's it's I don't see it as being persistent. Our economic models, blah, 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 yeah. blah. And so well, real quick, the, uh, the tweet was that it had five steps. And the first one was <laughs> there won't be inflation. Right. The second step was which we did here. So you were check on that. Yeah, the second step was this isn't inflation. Check. Which we also heard. The third step is this inflation will be temporary. And then I said, you are here right, right. now, right? And that had just come out in the headlines at that point. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's exactly right. And so uh, unfortunately- a And lot I guess as long as you're on that step, take us through the other steps, because I think that's where we're going, listeners. The fourth step I of. listed as question mark. And the fifth step was, hey, maybe those Mises Bitcoin people weren't insane. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I, I doubt the ability to ever get to step five. But, you know, I unfortunately, a lot of, you know, people are sort of like brushing this off as like it is just transitory. And for the reasons we already talked about, it actually doesn't matter if it's transitory. It still hurts people who yeah. who least need to, uh, you know, have their savings taken away in our society. Uh, but, you know, I'm really skeptical that it's going to be transitory. So so like the common argument is, well, <laughs> the Federal Reserve is currently overshooting its inflation target. They're printing money, but they're doing it to make up for the the lost you know, yeah. spending. And yeah. we're, we're just trying to stop this recession uh, immediately. And as soon as the recession stops, the Fed will pull back and, you know, the money supply will contract and we'll be fine. I'm worried that that won't happen because I actually don't think the Federal Reserve is very independent of political interests. I think it's going to be a really hard sell to convince Joe Biden that we should have a contractionary monetary policy where we decrease the supply of money, because that's going to lower the amount of investments. That's going to basically 
uh, make economic growth look worse. Yeah. And so Joe Biden wants better economic growth to get elected. And so I, I'm both worried about the incentives. And I also don't think the Fed policies are going to work quick enough. This is why, by the way, Milton Friedman was very against like inflation targeting and trying to hit like, oh, we need to hit a certain NB NGDP. Friedman was not a, an Austrian or a monetary economist or sorry, an Austrian or, a, a, you know, a big concern about inflation economists. But what he did recognize uh, is that government is actually not very good at even hitting, you know, specific targets like that they that they want to or, you know, changing the rate of inflation. So he focused on what was called the K percent rule, that we should have inflation of 1% or 2% every year, not that we should like have discretion. And so I, I, I agree with Friedman on that front, that discretion with the Federal Reserve is very dangerous. That's what they have right now. And I don't think that that discretion is going to work out in our favor. Here's my prediction. I, I think it is going to be persistently a problem. And the only way to get out of it would be for the Fed to take drastic measures of reducing the money, money supply, similar right. to what happened in the early 80s under Volcker. And I don't think they're going to have the willpower to do that. And so they're going to come out with this narrative. So mark my words. Here we go, listeners, economist prediction. Well, this is the new normal. We've decided 3% is okay, given the circumstances. We all went through this terrible time during COVID. And so if we keep inflation at 3% now, we, we used to do 2%, but 3% will be fine. I, I predict a new normal coming out where they're, 6% they're going is fine. 11%, no big deal. It, it, the first ratchet's going to be three. Yes. I, I hope it would not go higher than that, but I, I think that's that's where we're going. And then, uh, by the way, listeners, so then unemployment, uh, downturn in the economy. That's all what's in front of us um, when we have to hold back when this inflation gets a little ugly and people really start hunkering down and, and uh, holding cash. Um, the only way out of it that's a little more free market oriented is if the banks um, start hoarding cash like they did during the financial crisis. That can kind of stop this multiplier effect of this money getting turned over multiple times and continually pumping up prices. That's still going to have the effect of, uh, of recession. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not going to willing to predict the magnitude. It could be very mild, maybe, and um, we just kind of flatten out, or it could be a little more dramatic. I yeah, don't know. and I will say. Just my, my final comments on the issue is I would never offer a prediction about inflation going up or down. Uh, and the reason I wouldn't is because there's an entire market that's dedicated to predicting inflation. You can back out what people expect inflation to be in 10 years by looking at like treasury bonds. It's a complicated yep. process. Back to the real rates of return. But, 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 but the point is there are a lot of people who have a lot of money on the line in predicting inflation. And their prediction right now is like 2.5% in 10 years. I could tell you that I think it's not going to be that in 10 years if I want, but I have zero money on the line. So even <laughs> if I say that, you shouldn't trust me. And so I, I'm not going to make the, the huge prediction here and now that inflation will go up or down. For Russ's stated reasons, it could honestly stay where it is or go down. You know, that's that's certainly possible. But I think the key to, to point out is even if this is a, like a transitory thing that won't get really bad, it's still bad for some people. At the end of the day, having four or 5% higher prices that really hurts people who we don't want to be hurt in our society, who don't have a whole lot of wiggle room. And I think that's that's my main message. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap, unless there's any final comments. I would say that though Peter says he doesn't want to make a prediction for what inflation <laughs> is going to do, you know, we know that weak, weak. revealed preferences, <laughs> uh, you know, I have made a prediction on what inflation is going to do based on where I have my assets That's right now. Point. And I'm uh, betting that inflation is going to rise. And I will say that 
you know, what Russ has been saying about, you know, it'll be justified by, you know, we just went through this crisis. Yeah, that will be what's justified. Uh, but if we get through this crisis, we will, we have never been bereft of crises in America <laughs> since I have become politically, yeah. you know, even, you know, conscious. So I graduated high school in 2001. Since 2001, it has been one crisis after the next. And so I see I see no crisis-free future, uh, you know, on the horizon. I will, ex- I know that these policies are always justified by crises, and since I don't see a crisis-free future, I don't see um, how I don't see this coming to an end. So, yeah, that sounds like a good topic for maybe another podcast. So. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, Be sure to give us a nice rating if you like what we do and help uh, spread the word to other people. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Thanks.